The House will come back today and stay in session through Thursday. The Senate is in recess for the next two weeks. Last two weeks in the House, the House came back into session on Monday, June 14th, and took up and passed the rule to govern floor consideration of H.R. 256 to repeal the authorization for the use of military force against Iraq resolution of 2002 and H.R. 1187, the ESG Disclosure Simplification Act. On Tuesday, the House considered four bills under suspension of the rules. Two of them were adopted. On Wednesday, the House took up and passed H.R.E.S. 479, providing the, for the consideration of S-475 to amend Title V of the United States Code to designate Juneteenth National Independence Day as a legal public holiday. Then the House took up H.R. 1187, the ESG Disclosure Simplification Act. Four amendments were considered, two were agreed to. Then the House voted by 215 to 214 to pass the bill as amended, and then the House voted to make Juneteenth a national holiday. On Thursday of that week, the House took up H.R. 256 to repeal the 2002 authorization for the use of military force against Iraq resolution. The bill passed by a vote of 268 to 161, with 49 Republicans crossing party lines to vote with almost all the Democrats. I say almost all and not all because one Democrat, Congresswoman Elaine Luria of Virginia's 2nd Congressional District, voted against the bill. And then they went home. They came back on Tuesday, June 22nd, and took up and passed two bills under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday, the House took up and passed the rule governing floor consideration of H.R. 2062, the Protecting Older Workers Against Discrimination Act, H.R. 239, the Equal Access to Contraception for Veterans Act, H.R. 1443, the LGBTQ Business Equal Credit Enforcement and Investment Act, and three Congressional Review Act resolutions of disapproval identified as SJ Res 13, SJ Res 14, and SJ Res 15. Then the House passed a number of bills under suspension of the rules. Then the House took up H.R. 2062, the Protecting Older Workers Against Discrimination Act. Two amendments were considered, one was agreed to. And then the House voted by 247 to 148 to pass the bill as amended. On Thursday and Friday, the House took up the three CRA resolutions of disapproval and passed each one. The House also considered and passed H.R. 1443, the LGBTQ Business Equal Enforcement and Investment Act, and H.R. 239, the Equal Access to Contraceptions for Veterans Act. And then they were done. This week in the House, as I said, they'll return today with the first vote set for 6.30 p.m. At that time, the House is scheduled to consider 11 bills under suspension of the rules. On Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, the House is expected to consider H.R. 3005, removing certain statutes from the Capitol. H.R. 2662, the Inspector General Independence and Empowerment Act, and H.R. 3684, the Invest in America Act. That latter bill is a $715 billion surface transportation and infrastructure bill that came out of two committees, Transportation and Infrastructure and Energy and Commerce. It will not become law. It will, however, serve as the House's opening bid in a conference committee on infrastructure should the Senate pass an infrastructure bill. In addition, the House will consider legislation to establish a select committee to investigate the events of January 6th, about which we will speak more in just a moment. Now, last two weeks in the Senate. The Senate came back to work on Monday, June 14th, and voted to confirm Katanji Brown-Jackson to be a U.S. Circuit Judge for the District of Columbia Circuit. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of Lena M. Kahn to be a Federal Trade Commissioner. 
On Wednesday, the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of Radhika Fox to be an assistant administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency and of Lydia K. Grigsby to be a U.S. District Judge for the District of Maryland. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Tommy P. Boudreau to be Deputy Secretary of the Interior. On Thursday, the Senate voted to confirm Tommy P. Boudreau to serve as Deputy Secretary of the Interior, and the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of John K. Kin to be Deputy Secretary of Homeland Security. Then they went home for the weekend. The Senate came back to work on Monday, June 21, and voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Christopher Charles Fonzone to be General Counsel of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. On Tuesday, the Senate voted to confirm him to that position. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of Kiran Arhandas Auja to be Director of the Office of Personnel Management. Also on Tuesday, the Senate took up S-2093, a new piece of legislation that is actually the latest, greatest amended version of the Senate Democrats' version of S-1, the Corrupt Politicians Act. Majority Leader Schumer brought to bill to the floor I'm sorry, brought to the floor a motion to invoke cloture on the motion to proceed to the bill, but it failed on a 50 to 50 tie vote. It needed 60 votes to meet the cloture threshold. On Wednesday, the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of Deborah L. Boardman to be a U.S. District Judge for the District of Maryland. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Candace Jackson Akiwumi to be a U.S. Circuit Judge for the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. On Thursday, the Senate took up S-1251, a bill to authorize the Secretary of Agriculture to develop a program to reduce barriers to entry for farmers, ranchers, and private forest landowners in certain voluntary markets. The bill passed by a vote of 92 to 8. Then the Senate voted to confirm Candace Jackson Akiwumi to be a U.S. Circuit Judge for the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, and then they were done. This week in the Senate, as I said, they're in recess for the next two weeks. When they reconvene on July 12, the Senate will resume consideration of Uzra Zaya to be Undersecretary of State for Civilian Security, Democracy, and Human Rights. At 5.30 p.m. on Monday, July 12, there will be a roll call vote on, on cloture on the nomination of Uzra Zaya. In addition, the Majority Leader has filed cloture on the nomination of Julie A. Sue to be Deputy Secretary of the Department of Labor. On Thursday of last week, Speaker Pelosi announced she would create a new committee of the House to investigate what she called the many questions about the events leading up to the riot at the Capitol on January 6th and the federal government's response to that day. This follows by four weeks the failure of the Senate to pass legislation that had already passed the House to create a 10-member bipartisan commission to look into the events surrounding January 6th. At this point, she has not announced who will serve as chairman of the select committee, but sources indicate senior House Democrats seem to be coalescing around current Homeland Security Committee Chairman Benny Thompson of Mississippi for the role. We also don't know who the other members of the select committee will be. That is, whether it will be limited to committee chairman or will rank and file members be added. And will Republicans play ball? Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has not tipped his hand. On Friday of last week, the Department of Justice filed a lawsuit against the state of Georgia, alleging that the state's new voting law infringes on the civil rights of minority voters in the state. The suit seeks to overturn several portions of Senate Bill 202. It's the first major voting rights case brought by Attorney General Merrick Garland's Department of Justice, and it just coincidentally was filed less than 72 hours 
after the United States Senate had voted to block advancement of the Democrats' signature election reform legislation. Not only that, but the, the lawsuit was filed on the eighth anniversary of the U.S. Supreme Court decision in the case of Shelby County v. Holder a decision in which the Supreme Court overturned as unconstitutional Section 5 of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which mandated pre-clearance by the Federal Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice in covered states of any changes to election procedures. The Supreme Court also ruled on Obamacare. On Thursday, June 17, the Supreme Court, in a 7-2 decision, ruled that Obamacare was, you guessed it, constitutional. You'll remember this case. In 2012, in the case of NFIB v. Sebelius, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote for a 5-4 to four court that the Commerce Clause did not authorize the individual mandate requirement to purchase health insurance, but the individual mandate's tax penalty was nevertheless a valid exercise of Congress's taxing authority. And because the individual mandate was a tax, it was constitutional, and therefore the law withstood challenge. The 2017 Tax Cut and Jobs Act changed the tax penalty associated with the requirement to purchase health insurance and reduced that tax to zero. Once the tax penalty was reduced to zero, some conservative groups and state officials thought it was essentially repealed. And since the constitutionality of the law had rested in the 2012 decision on the fact that the individual mandate was a tax and the tax was now gone, that meant that the law's constitutionality was gone too. So Texas and a bunch of other states sued to have the law overturned. The District Court and the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals agreed that the mandate was unconstitutional, but declined to rule on whether that meant the rest of the law had to be struck down. In the Supreme Court ruling, authored by Justice Stephen Breyer, the court maintained that the plaintiffs had no standing to sue. Because the tax penalty had been set to zero, the court said, no one had suffered harm and without harm, there's no case. The ruling avoided dealing with the larger question of whether or not the entire law must fall if the mandate was ruled unconstitutional. Now to more on the Corrupt Politicians Act. After many weeks of pressuring West Virginia Democrat Senator Joe Manchin, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer made clear a week and a half ago that he would soon be bringing a version of S-1, the Corrupt Politicians Act, to the floor of the U.S. Senate. He was hoping the pressure would force Manchin to relent, that Manchin's desire to be a good Democrat would trump his concerns over the bad things he saw in the bill. Manchin surprised everyone by releasing a three-page memo that outlined what he liked and what he did not like in the 800-page-plus bill. And Georgia Democrat Stacey Abrams, who's become one of the Democrat Party stars on the matter of elections, gave Manchin cover by blessing his concerns. As they moved into the weekend, it seemed as if Manchin's concerns would be put in the form of legislation. But by the time the following Tuesday rolled around, the day Schumer had set for a cloture vote on the motion to proceed to the legislation, things still had not been settled. Before the vote, Manchin and Schumer came to an agreement. Manchin would agree to invoke cloture on the motion to proceed in exchange for a promise from Schumer that when debate on the legislation began, Manchin would be allowed to offer the First Amendment for consideration. Of course, that was all just for show. Manchin's vote was necessary, but not sufficient to invoke cloture, which requires 60 votes, not just 50. 
So even though Schumer succeeded in getting all 48 Democrats and the two independents who caucus with the Democrats to vote to invoke cloture on the motion to proceed, Schumer still came up a full 10 votes short of the 60 votes he needed to move to consideration of the legislation. For those who were paying very close attention earlier when I was going through the daily votes in the Senate over the last two weeks, allow me to explain S-2093 and its relation to S-1. S-2093 is the 880-page amendment that Rules Committee Chairwoman Amy Klobuchar wanted to substitute for the bill during a markup session several weeks ago. But since it requires a majority vote of the committee to adopt an amendment, and because the committee is composed of an equal number of Democrats and Republicans, and because none of the Republicans would agree to vote for the substitute amendment, the amendment failed. That left Klobuchar and Schumer with a problem on their hands. But Schumer is almost as crafty as the Republican leader, Mitch McConnell. So Schumer pulled a play out of McConnell's playbook and introduced the amendment as a new piece of legislation designated S-2093. Then, rather than assigning the bill to the purview of the Senate Rules and Administration Committee, Schumer used Rule 14 to fast-track it straight to the floor. And that's how S-2093 became the new and current version of the Corrupt Politicians Act. Now to the debt ceiling, which we haven't talked about since the summer of 2019. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, testifying last Wednesday before a Senate Appropriations Subcommittee, said the U.S. government could run out of room to keep paying the nation's bills at some point during the scheduled August recess unless Congress acts to raise or suspend the debt ceiling before then. In 2019, the last time Congress dealt with the debt ceiling, lawmakers opted to pass legislation suspending the debt ceiling until July 31st, 2021. That's just a month away. Here's where it gets interesting. Democrats in the majority in both House and Senate could choose to use the reconciliation process to enact an increase in the debt limit by simple majority vote of both houses. That would mean they wouldn't need to win any Republican votes, which means they wouldn't have to give up anything of value in exchange for those votes. But to do that, they have to vote to actually increase the debt ceiling, not just suspend it as they've preferred to do the last several times they've done it. That's because the law that allows them to bypass a Senate filibuster and move legislation with a simple majority vote is quite specific in its language regarding an increase in the debt ceiling. So the Democrats who are in charge on Capitol Hill can suspend the debt ceiling until a date certain down the road a few years. But to do that, they're going to have to cut a deal with at least 10 Republican votes to defeat a filibuster. Or they can move a debt ceiling increase through the reconciliation process or add it to a reconciliation bill so they don't need any Republican votes. But to do it that way, they actually have to raise the debt ceiling by a certain dollar amount. They don't want to do that for political reasons. That opens them up to a political attack. It's a tougher political attack to say, my opponent voted to raise the debt ceiling by $5 trillion than it is to say, my opponent voted to suspend the debt ceiling until July 31, 2023. Stay tuned. This one's going to get interesting. Now, finally, to infrastructure. A lot has happened on the infrastructure front in the two weeks since we last spoke. In a nutshell, a bipartisan group of 21 senators came to an agreement over an infrastructure bill that would spend a little less than a trillion dollars, of which about $550 billion would be in so-called new money that is not already appropriated for some other purpose. Read COVID relief, but not yet spent over the next five years, or about $1.2 trillion over the next eight years. 
They got President Biden to sign off on it last Thursday. He actually left the confines of the White House and went outside the West Wing to join the senators in speaking with the media, and he was quite enthused. Then he went back inside to meet with Speaker Pelosi and Majority Leader Schumer to discuss with them how to move the infrastructure bill in a separate reconciliation bill to handle all the spending wishes that did not make it into the infrastructure bill. And then the three of them spoke to the press and made clear that the bipartisan infrastructure bill Biden had just been crowing about would not become law unless the separate reconciliation bill also became law at the same time. In other words, indicated the three most powerful Democrats in the federal government, the bipartisan infrastructure bill was going to be a hostage to the reconciliation bill. If you want to see that bipartisan infrastructure bill pass, they made clear, then we first have to pass the out-of-control spending plan in the reconciliation bill. Republican senators in the bipartisan group were upset and not shy about saying so. They felt they had been lied to and tricked. They felt they had been made fools of. None of them had signed on to that strategy. On Friday, the White House went into full damage control mode. White House counselor Steve Ricchetti was heard to say the president had misspoken, but that was not enough to assuage the tempers of the Republicans. So on Saturday, the White House released a fuller Biden statement in which he appeared to backtrack totally. You know who didn't backtrack? Speaker Pelosi. She's still on record saying the infrastructure bill will not pass until the reconciliation bill passes first. I'm betting Speaker Pelosi is closer to accurate than President Biden. Stay tuned. And that's our Washington Report for this week.